Welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Michael. And I'm Sam. And today, the demographic and financial problems threatening to derail the Chinese economic miracle. Over the past two decades, countless books, op-eds, and TED Talks have been released which herald the coming Asian century, set to replace the Western world order. Repeated ad nauseum, it's claimed that China will become the new economic center of the world, much like the United States became after World War II. However, we argue that this household cliché overemphasizes China's unprecedented recent economic growth without considering its future headwinds. In reality, China has a myriad of internal problems which are threatening to blue-ball its economic expansion. So today, we're here to pour a bucket of cold water on this Szechuan-hot perception of the Chinese economy. So the first of these headwinds facing China is its oncoming demographic crisis. To understand what we're talking about, we have to first break down demographics into some broad strokes. You can think of demographics in a country in roughly one of three categories. You have the kids, the seniors, and the all-important meaty middle of economic productivity. What do I mean by that? Well, children are not really contributing to the economy. They're net trains. You have to school them, feed them, house them, clothe them, all this sort of stuff. And that goes on for, you know, call it 18, 24, whatever, however many years um, that it takes for them to become adults and start contributing to the economy. At the other end of the spectrum, you also have seniors. Same sort of thing. They may be drawing down a pension or receiving government benefits, but definitionally in this cohort, they've retired and stopped working and are also no longer contributing to the economy. But then you have the third, perhaps most important group, the meaty middle, which I talked about. This group is where all of a country's economic production happens. It's where, you know, you're, you're holding a job down, you finish school, you're getting promotions, you're starting companies, you're contributing to the economy, you're in the workforce, all this sort of stuff. Um, and you can tell a lot about a country's potential and historic economic success from the relative size of these three demographic cohorts. About the only reliable metric that they can use is your age. So it's, it's worth repeating again that it's primarily people aged roughly 20 to 65, maybe more like 30 to 65 in some cases. Uh, it's roughly those people that are contributing the bulk of literally anything to an economy. You know, and to be fair, obviously, you can have like an 11-year-old wonder kid who like graduated college and you can have an 85-year-old still trucking. But the, the, we're talking about broad terms. And demographics are especially important in China given how important its population is to its overall economic success. For comparison, China has a GDP per capita roughly equivalent to Mexico, not exactly thought of as a rich country, but it's the number two economy by total size on the world stage by function of its incredibly large population. That's 1.4 billion Chinese citizens to roughly 330 million American citizens. So that's an enormous gap, and when you take a relatively low per capita base, but you just multiply it by 1.4 billion, you're going to get a very large economy. So more so than in other economies, very small demographic shifts can have an outsized impact on this base that really makes up so much of what makes China great. So consider all the noise that we've heard about China ever since we were born. I mean, I was born in 1990. You were probably somewhere close to that. Ever since we've been alive, China has been on this meteoric economic rise. The reason that this started literally in the 1980s, uh, no coincidence, is because of the one-child policy in part, which was adopted in 1980, coinciding with economic liberalization policies uh, put in place by Deng Xiaoping, also in the early 1980s. So what we had at this point in time, well, let's, we'll take it back to right at, exactly at 1978. This was when China's working age population, that, that great productive segment that we were talking about earlier, that was 58% of the Chinese population overall. And it has since only continued to rise until 2010, when that percentage of the population peaked at 74%. No, that's great points. And it's worth noting that that percentage of the population that's working age is expected to return to historical averages of roughly 60% by 2040, as projected by the UN. Just to reiterate a couple points that you said, you can definitely explain a huge chunk of China's economic rise as a result of both the economic liberalization, which we're not going to be touching on today, but the effects of the one-child policy. And just to kind of put some concrete numbers on that, 
If you were born in 1980, that means you're 40 years old right now. So that's obviously the last year before the one-child policy. So this population bump, this boom in this one segment, this bulge, has a couple more years of playing out of being really in the spotlight of the Chinese economy. So a big part of the reason that China rose to the position that it did from the 1980s up until now is because not only did it have such a massive population, but a massive proportion of that population was in the workforce actively. Uh, in fact, I, you could probably just safely assume that they had the largest working age population in the world in their country. Um, and, and again, this coincided with the fact that not only did they have favorable policies in place, but they all also had you know, reasonable enough infrastructure to export their goods to market. So, you know, maybe maybe some people are thinking about, well, why didn't India become an economic powerhouse? Yeah, there's there's reasons for that. I want to be charitable and say that, you know, population is not the only factor at play here uh, in determining the rise of a country's economy. But it is a very major one. And with China, it's extremely important because, again, the per capita income in China is not particularly great. But all good things must come to an end. And that is the case with this demographic dividend that China has been experiencing. Like I mentioned, the very beginnings of the one-child policy, people born in 1980, are now 40 years old right now, which means that in another 20, 25 years, they're going to begin to age out and retire out of the labor force. That means that this is assuredly a crisis incoming. That's because, like we said at the very beginning, it takes roughly you know 20 years to raise a new child into productive age of the economy. And if you look at China's demographic pyramid, that's what it's called. It shows the relative ages of people within the population. It looks more like a Christmas tree because after 1980, the bottom just falls out and you can see the incredibly sharp decline in births. So within the next 20 years, China's going to start to feel the effects where this Generation X, that's what they're called, Generation X, think of it like in the United States, is going to start to age out. And they're not going to have the same number of people people incoming to replace them. It's like, so for every one person who ages out of the labor force, there might only be like half an individual left to replace them to come back in. And again, because China relies so heavily on its population and demographics for economic growth, this is going to have huge knock-on effects for the economy. So huge knock-on effects is actually an understatement of the problem. This could be disastrous. In fact, it's going to be really, really bad no matter what China does at this point to fix it. They can manage the situation absolutely perfectly, and they are still not going to have enough people to fix their problem. Um, so let's clarify why exactly this is a problem, and then let's get into what the problem looks like in terms of raw numbers, like what, what we can actually expect for China going forward. In China, notably, unlike the United States, there is no social safety net, really. There's no social security system. There are very few government policies that keep people from out of poverty. And honestly, that's that's kind of the, the modal way of doing things in most countries in the world. You know, China's just kind of in the same bucket as all of them. Yeah, it's, it's, only, a, it's only a rich country that's able to afford something like that. Yeah, yeah, or like a per capita rich country, really. Yeah, exactly. You got to support a lot of people in China. Um, so... What's happening right now is that, as you mentioned, the one-child cohort is coming into productive age, which means that they are now going to be the ones that one child per family is going to be supporting all those grandparents and parents all by themselves, right? So you got like one kid supporting their two parents and their four grandparents and whoever else is left, maybe aunts or uncles left over. Um, that means, frankly, we don't know what that means. We don't know what China is going to have to do. At best, maybe they will divert some of their discretionary spending in other areas like construction or the military or internal security, and they'll divert it towards social programs or something. Who knows? I mean, they, they can't just let the population starve en masse, but that's about what's going to happen if they don't. So one more thing to touch on before we get to the effects that this dwindling population is going to have on China. I want to talk briefly about China's ability to divert this crisis or not. So there is a huge difference between enforcing a limit on the number of children possible, i.e. the one-child policy, and increasing that birth rate from whatever the current average is. If you enact a one-child policy, you can take draconian steps possibly to prevent the birth of additional children per parents. You can you know, go around and take tallies and say, oh, this, you, know, you have two children, off to the gulag with you or whatever. That is a very different beast than increasing the fertility rate. Uh, short of locking a man and a woman in a room and not letting them come out until they produce a positive pregnancy test, it's really, really hard for a government to increase that because there's a whole bunch of factors that go into a couple deciding to have only one or no or whatever number of children. It could be wealth, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. There's the expectation of only having one child because this entire generation now has been raised. Not only they were the only child, but all of their friends and cohorts and you know classmates, whatever, all of those were one child as well. So there's this very entrenched uh, cultural expectation of only having one child in China now. So, and again, because this is a long coming crisis, 20 years is, you know, the ramp up time or whatever. If 
corrective action is taken today and it is efficacious, only then can you avert this, or not avert this, but like lessen the sting of what is already coming down the pike. And those are two major ifs. Like it's really hard to do that. And who knows if even the CCP in all of its, you know, political authority and everything can make that happen. So off the back of that, there are a lot of cultural tenets, or I should just say cultural norms and financial concerns that have led to the replacement rate being as low as it is in China. And it's those reasons why we think that it's not going to change dramatically anytime soon. So currently, the replacement rate in China sits at 1.6 as per government official statistics. Juan, before we get into that, what, can you tell us about what the replacement rate is? Oh, sure. Replace, so replacement rate is just the number of people being born for all the people going out. Is, is like my layman's way of describing it. So, I mean, to, to make it to make it clear, a replacement rate of 2.1 is what's required in order to maintain the current level of any country's population. Two people coming in for every two people going out plus 0.1 for good measure because unfortunate events happen. Uh, and again, in China, the official government-provided number is 1.6. That only gets you to 75% of that 2.1. Now, China has a vested interest in looking healthier than it actually is. And they, they have a long track record of doctoring numbers. You don't need me to tell you that. Uh, I'll we range, actually will be talking about that in a little bit as which well. Which we actually will be <laughs> talking about very soon. Um, so a lot of third-party watchdog agencies put the number closer to 1.2%. and Sorry, 1.2, uh, which only gets you to about 57% of the way to 2.1. Now, notably, that 1.6 actually matches the United States' replacement rate. The difference with the number there is that, A, we can probably trust the information coming out of the United States. They're not doctoring it. Two, <laughs> we can trust the U.S. government? What? Yeah, I mean, at least <laughs> in so far. Something like that, Maybe. yeah, I'm sure. question mark. Um, yeah, okay, <laughs> sure. Like, massive asterisk there by what I said. Hope I don't eat my words later. Probably will. Um, but anyways, 1.6 is actually probably correct in the United States. And in addition to that 1.6, the United States has one of the highest rates of immigration in the entire world and has for a very long time, whereas China has almost none. Yeah, and that's outside the scope of this episode, but uh, not a lot of people want to come to China, and China doesn't really want to take anyone, let's actually so. Let's actually like add a little bit of context to that for people that maybe aren't in the United States or aren't as familiar with what's going on there. Um, if you live in you know, my city of Atlanta, I, I wouldn't be surprised if 15 to 20% of the people living in that city are immigrants. You're in Boston. What do you think it is here, where, where you are? Yeah. I mean, depends on, you know, depends on the neighborhood, obviously, but I think like, yeah, certainly within the city proper and everything, that's a totally reasonable guess. I want to double check this, but I heard the statistic for like the last 10 years of population growth in California, 30% of that entire growth was all immigrants. Mm -hmm. And like that, it would, it, it's kind of surprising that it's not even higher than that. Like the United States continues to be a hotbed of immigration uh, and China just does not. So that's why you're not hearing as much panic about the American birth rate. Unless you're holding kiki torches, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> it actually gets worse, it, <laughs> believe it or not, for China. It actually gets even worse. Also, if you've lived in the United States, you've probably noticed that there's been a lot of little Chinese girls and not as many Chinese boys. Um, it is probably not exactly a secret anymore that in China for a very long time, families preferred boys to having girls because, you know, the men could carry on the family name later on and the, every family was limited to one child. So what that left us with was a gender split in China currently of about 52 to 48%. Okay. It's actually much worse than that. <laughs> it, it, but wait, there's more. Um, that gender split gets even more pronounced at the ends of the age spectrum. So as in every other country, women tend to outlive men. So at the upper age bracket, women outnumber men in China. But on the lower end, where people were having kids and preferring boys, the difference is even more pronounced, but to the male direction, right? And just eyeballing the graph right now, looking at it, it looks like a solid, you know, almost 7 to 10% differential between boys and girls. It's a lot. So that's a lot of leftover men who are not going to be reproducing. So a lot of those numbers that you see at the bottom of that childbearing age bracket, they're not actually going to be bearing children. That, that's exactly correct. You can Google China demographic pyramid to see what we've been talking about for this section. And like Mike was talking about, it is very pronounced. Like once you get above 65, there are more females than males. But at the bottom end, it like, wow, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of extra dudes. And, you know, even at that top line number, the 52, 48, like if that doesn't sound like a massive shift, like remember that was enough to get Brexit done. So, you hey. know. <laughs> Nice. nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, As an ancillary to that, this isn't really relevant to demographics or you know, economic decline, but have you ever been in an area where just men vastly outnumbered women? 
Okay, like have. every nightclub you've ever been to. <laughs> or, like, or, you know, more. I'm alluding to the college that you and I went to, and we all saw what happened on the weekends when there were no women to distract all the drunk, angry men. Stuff got broken is what I'm alluding to. Yeah, the comedian Patton Oswalt put it best. I'm going to paraphrase it and butcher it terribly, but when there's a bunch of unattended young men, they're going to end, out at the bar, right? They're going to end their nights with skin on skin in one way or another. Exactly. Yeah, one velocity or another. One velocity or another. That's what it was. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect. China undertook a world historical experiment with the one-child policy and its effects, so we have nothing really to compare it to in world history. Like, the the gender skew that China has is not only the most pronounced in the entire world, but they also have the largest population in the entire world. So to say we know what's going to happen is, I, I, mean, I mean, we don't, but it is going to be interesting and obviously tremendously important to China's future. But uh, is there anything else you want to say on that topic? Well, yeah, actually, I, I want to I touch on some brief corrective measures that the government has put in and the reaction to those measures. So the one-child policy, of course, is famous, but have you heard about the two-child policy? So that just came into effect in 2015. This is relatively recent um, because the Chinese government understands that this demographic shift is a major problem for it and its ability to spend money the way that it wants to, right? Because, again... Um, if you have a big demographic crisis, you're not going to have either the kind of military or infrastructure or internal security spending that you would like to. You're going to have to shift from one thing or another. Something's going to have to give. Okay, so two-child policy went into effect in 2015. It created a little bump in the birth rate, not much of one. It went right back to what it was before that within a couple months. Um, and so even more recently, I think within the year, they instituted a— Yeah, 2021. Yeah, 2021, they instituted a three-child policy. What did the three-child policy do? Well, barring a couple hilarious reactions on Weibo, pretty much nothing. In fact, all of the top upvoted comments underneath the government's announcement of the three-child policy were mocking in nature of the three-child policy. The very top-rated one was literally, bah, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, like a, like a big, <laughs> really, like cringe. Imagine having children. Yeah, I wanted to clarify that. Because of economic factors, which we've touched on a little bit, we'll get into a little bit more later, and the cultural expectations and all this sort of stuff, there is not the desire in China to take advantage of these newly loosened uh, childbirth policies. So the mocking that Mike was expressing is like, yeah, people are like, huh, okay, you changed the policy. So what? What do we care? Not only what do we care, but how would we ever afford that anyway with the way that our economy is going? See, that's actually the perception in China. That's what they're not telling you. Like, there are skyrocketing costs associated with childcare in China, notably with education and housing. Um, but it's just worth mentioning that the perception in China right now is that one family has to basically try with all of their might just to support one child, especially if you're in the cities, let alone two, and don't even get dreaming about three. So to put a pin on this entire section before we move on, just to give a brief wrap up, China's economic growth in the past 40 years has been in part a function of its excellent demographics. However, that's going to be shifting very soon, very badly for China. If Major corrective action is taken today. The worst of this could be avoided, but that is a major question mark on the government's ability to do so. If the demographic crisis unfolds in the way that we're expecting, there's going to be all sorts of major question marks raised about China in terms of how skewed male it is, the decreasing population, the fact that's going to result in lower economic growth. As a result, the government's going to have a lot less money to spend on some stuff that it's very well known for. Think of infrastructure, roads, bridges, rails. Uh, it's military spending, you know, getting buck in the South China Sea. It's a uh, internal surveillance, all that sort of stuff. We can't see the future, but the demographic crisis is a major way of understanding what's going to be happening in China over the next 20 years. Now, I think is a good time to transition onto the housing crisis in China. Now, I know I said crisis to try and make it sound interesting. Housing is not exactly the most exciting topic in the world. So let me lead with this little statistic, and that is that in China, especially when you're evaluating the economy, you need to keep in mind that 70% of all household wealth is tied up in real estate investments right now, right? Literally more second houses are being purchased than first houses, and almost as many third houses are being purchased as first houses. Housing in China is treated as an investment first and a place to live second. And I'm going to kick it over to Sam now to explain a little bit more about what I'm talking about here. The point is, this is a grave issue in China with a lot of money wrapped up in it. It is the predominant mode that people choose to stash and save their money. 
Exactly correct. When we actually started researching this episode, Evergrande had not happened yet, and we're going to be getting into a little bit of that more. But the, the economics of China's housing markets did not make sense prior to when we started working on this episode. And, you know, th- this is much less a sure thing than demographics, which you can predict with a lot of certainty because people age and grow up like in a pre- pretty predictable order. <laughs> but there is, there is a lot of there there when it comes to housing. So let's go ahead and get right into that, starting with the cause of, let's call it, a bubble and how we got there. Uh, To understand what brought us to this point, you have to understand the iron triangle of incentives and interests that cause the housing market to really just ride a rocket ship the past 40 years. So there is the demand and the supply side. On the demand side, because China's tremendously increased its wealth over the past 40 years, there has been tremendous demand for investment opportunities. You know, if you have a bit of money in the United States, you probably park it in your 401k, maybe your Vanguard, buy some meme stocks, you know, that you saw on Wall Street bets or whatever. You know, you, you want to invest some money, right? You don't just keep it all cash in your bank account. Um, And in the same way, there's the same demand in China. But here's the catch. The traditional avenues where people would be investing are really limited in China. The stock market is seen as too volatile for a whole bunch of reasons that we're not going to get into now. The bond market offers too low of a return. And due to capital controls in China, you can't get your money out of the country. I think there's like a $10,000 USD limit on the amount of cash that you can invest abroad, which, you know, other than like very low income stuff, like that's not enough to satisfy you know, uh, uh, anyone even remotely middle class. You also can't get your money out of China very easily to invest elsewhere. Exactly. So all these factors combined have really led the Chinese to park their money in the last available avenue for them, which is real estate. Think about this again on a personal level. You might know someone who like owns a second home and rents it out for an Airbnb. You know, real estate's a very conventional asset class, but in China, it's been supercharged because it is the only asset class in town. I mean, just to paint this out a little bit more, if you go to any major Chinese city on the periphery of that city, you will find tons and tons and tons of empty apartment buildings that have been constructed and are just waiting for someone to maybe fill them. But it's mostly just being speculated on like these places have owners, they just don't have occupants. People are holding on to these apartments and hoping, betting that rural to urban migration or whatever is going to cause an influx of people available to actually live in these apartments and buy them. Um, and that is just that's just the case everywhere you go in China now. It's that common. Yeah, and Mike says or whatever because as we just talked about, it's not going to be population growth for too much long. That's going to drive no, the uh... <laughs> yeah. In the context <laughs> of a demographic, like an ongoing population crunch, like who's going to fill these things? You're gonna you yeah. you, you would have to see a lot of rural uh, to urban migration to make this work. Um, and that is actually part of what's driving the the speculation. Yeah, we'll get back to that in a second, but I want to I want to continue on oh, with sure. the three influence three interests that are driving the property market. So we talked about the demand side. Why is there all this appetite for real estate investment? But let's talk about the supply side. There's two players, uh, and one of them is pretty easy, which is the property developers. Property developers are a huge part of the economy, and they have a, an interest to see the mar- the market keep booming. That's pretty obvious. But the other one to understand, and this is a little bit more tricky, is local Chinese governments. So what do they have to do with property development? There's a bunch of factors. One is that while taxes are collected mostly at a local level within China, the revenue almost entirely all flows upwards to Beijing, who then gets to turn around and reallocate their money. You know, they are communists from each from their ability to each according to their needs. <laughs> um, but at the same time, local governments are expected to provide most of the services that you would think about a government providing. Think of transportation, education, healthcare, etc. So there's this kind of discrepancy between how much money they're taking in and how much money they're expected to put out. So. As a result, they've turned to the local governments have turned to a unique ability that they have, which is the ability to designate land as either rural, which is collectively owned, again, ostensibly communist country, or urban, which can be privately owned, quote unquote. And I say quote unquote because nobody owns land in China. You can only get it for a 70-year lease. Um, however, the earliest of these leases were given out 40 years ago during the economic liberalization. Uh, which means that they still have another 30 years on their lease. So that's too far in the future. We're not really going to talk about it. Pretend people own property. You can more or less pretend, pretend people, people can own property in China is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. it's that's a whole different topic and obviously um, a little too much to go well, into Well, I mean, here. the but, point is the local governments can unilaterally decide which land is sellable for real estate and which land is not, and they have a strong incentive to do it because that money that they make from those sales doesn't have to go to Beijing, whereas everything else that they collect does. 
Exactly. And the reasons for that are also a little complex. It involves what's known as a local government financing vehicle, basically a shell corporation set up by the local government. Again, a little too technical, but it's worth um, highlighting these points so we're not glossing over them. But great. So that's that's kind of how this has started up. There's huge demand for residential investments, and there's huge interest in supplying those residential investments because it lines the pockets of local governments and real estate developers, two major players within China. And for that reason, up until pretty recently, it was just universal that real estate prices continue to go up and up and up and up and up. Um, so if it's worth more tomorrow, why not buy it today and then sell it for a profit tomorrow? Uh, now, there are some cases finally trickling in as of this year of some people losing their money or having to, you know, they, they can't hold on to their investment anymore and they end up selling it either for an equal return or a loss. Of course, an equal return actually means a loss due to things like inflation and the fact that you have to pay to even hold on to the apartment. Um, so how is it going currently? Um, we've talked about the incentive structure. We've talked about how bad this all is in terms of numbers. Um, but there are a few things that are perpetuating this crisis beyond just the iron triangle of interest that you already outlined. Uh, the first thing is a major, major cultural, Im again, gender imbalance in China, the male-female thing. Think about if you are one of those men. You're one of those leftover men and there aren't enough women to go around. You need to have a house. You need to have a car. You need to have a nice job if you want to actually be an eligible bachelor. Um, in fact, most families just won't even consider a male for marriage if they do not own property. And the females can be super choosy on this point, like just worth reiterating. Like you do not have to settle if you are one of the women in China who did not get shipped abroad or aborted. So yeah, like a, a huge percentage. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. So a... a Sizable percentage of the people that are buying these new homes are these leftover men, or I guess the not so leftover men, the one who actually uh, the ones who are trying to not be leftover, the ones over who men. are trying to not be leftover, right? <laughs> yeah, no, there, there's a lot of competition specifically with those guys. Um, there's a second reason for competing for these apartments, and that's because of something called the Huquo system in China, which is in reality a bunch of small systems all kind of interacting together, but we're going to pretend that they're one thing. Uh, underneath the Huquo system, it's more or less stipulated that you cannot have access to the higher quality goods, and, well, the higher quality services like education or emergency services, what have you. Um, you can't have access to those in a city unless you are a bona fide resident and own property. In that city, like you have to, you have to actually own property, right? Which, real quick, like worth putting a fine point on that. That is different than most other places in the world, where it's like if I live in San Francisco and my house is on fire, the fire department's still expected to come by and put it down. And maybe that's the case in China, but like if I'm if I'm renting an apartment, for instance, I can still put my kids into the local elementary school there. You cannot do that in China. If I live in San Francisco and I'm on a tour in New York City, the police are still going to come help me. And I guess I guess okay, so like kids maybe can't go to school, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's I think I think I think we overstated it with the police and firemen. But the, the the important one here is the schools. Like if you're renting an apartment. Somewhere, you can still send your kids to a school. That isn't because of the Huko system. If you're renting an apartment in Beijing, that does not afford you the same opportunity there. Basically, there is a massive influx of rural to urban migration in China right now. In fact, it's estimated that about 30% of the population of Beijing are these designated rural workers that are there uh, either attempting to get a lockdown on some property or they're trying to earn the money necessary to do it while they live in an apartment with 16 other poor people from the countryside. Yeah, and that's why you see, I mean, among other reasons, that's why you typically only see see individual male rural, rural to urban migrants because they can't, even if they had a family, they can't bring them there because their children wouldn't be able to go to school, all that other sort of stuff. You know, and one last thing to mention is, and this is on the local government supply side of the issue, officials at all levels in China are given explicit GDP growth targets as a metric of their success, and a very easy way to increase that number is through construction. We're going to touch on this a little bit more, but understand that this is another contributing factor that's increasing the supply of housing and making it more available because local governments have, beyond just the immediate money in their pocket, they have a political promotion incentive to see that construct to see those cranes keep going up, basically. None of this stuff would really matter if these homes were actually going to be purchased and if people were actually going to move into them. And we already mentioned the demographic crisis coming to China, but there are a few other big issues that prevent these places from being bought and I think will prevent them from being bought well into the future. The first thing to note is that the price of housing relative to local salaries is massive. It is massively skewed even in comparison with places like San Francisco or New York. I mean, hell, no, the people in San Francisco who actually work there can afford the, the housing in San Francisco if you've got a nice tech job at Amazon or whatever. So the way to think about it is that San Francisco 
example, you know, obviously thought of as the most expensive real estate market in the United States, it takes on average 10 times an annual salary to be able to purchase a home in San Francisco. The national average in all of China is 17 times the annual salary. This is not like, <laughs> again- so, so you're taking um, the most expensive in the United States and comparing it to the average in China. Exactly. What does the and, most and expensive worse. in China look like? Well, I mean, yeah, and it's worth keeping in mind that a great George Carlin quote, think about how stupid the average person is. Well, half of the people are stupider than that. And just, just like think about how expensive the real estate market is in China. Well, half of it's even more expensive than that. In the top tier, <laughs> in the top tier cities, think about your Shanghai, Beijing, uh, Shenzhen, the average uh, annual income to home purchase rate is 33 42 and 43 times your annual salary respectively in Shenzhen, which is just like that. It literally takes an entire lifetime to be able to purchase a house if you're just doing it on your own. It's expensive as hell. There are still very strong reasons to try and buy a home in, the, in, in China. But most of these properties, again, remember, they're being built on mass and they're being treated as an investment and not exactly as a place to live. So there is a there is a very short expiration date on a lot of these places being built. Companies have a strong incentive to use subpar materials, and subpar is being very, very generous in description. Um, but basically, these places do not have a very long shelf life. Um, just anecdotally, if you watch a couple of YouTubers that have lived over in this in this part of the world, they can show you, like, I watched one video of a guy who moved into a pretty fancy-looking, like, luxe apartment complex, and within six months, the escalator had broke down, the pool had gone dry, and stuff was just chipping off of the walls everywhere and fixtures were falling out of the lights. You know, oh, I mean, sorry, light fixtures were falling off of the ceilings. And all the while, people are clawing at his door to get an eye on his room because they want to buy it, even though they can't tell that there's water damage on the floor and that the walls are peeling. You know, that, that's what we're dealing with. There are places literally being fortified in China right now with styrofoam and cardboard. For construction. Um, in fact, I saw a picture of, a, of, a, of like a concrete wall that was fortified with corn cobs, actual corn cobs. <laughs> like, yeah, these are no, not yeah. these are not homes that are being built to last. This is a get rich quick scheme of the highest exactly. degree for the real estate investors, the the property developers, and the people. You know, and it's worth it's just as you're saying this, it's worth reiterating a point that we made at the very top of this segment, which is. More people are buying second and third homes than first homes by a tremendous amount, and more people are buying second homes than first homes. So definitionally, most people are not buying a house to live in it, but rather as an investment opportunity. And if you're not living in it, you know, you don't really care that it sucks, for lack of a better word. Someone else will buy it, as we've seen. And if you, again, if you look at real estate prices over the past 40 years in China, every single time, someone else has bought it. Mm -hmm. Now, of course... Just like with a demographic crisis, Beijing recognizes this as a problem and has taken steps to stymie the demand for real estate. And none of it seems to be really working, despite the inclusion of things like, what, 70% mandated down payments for second home purchases and up? Yeah. Mm -hmm, Anything exactly. past your first yeah. home has a massive down payment mandated by law now. There's also a limit on how many properties that individual people can actually own. There's also a three-property limit to what each person can own, so no one gets to go past that third. Yeah, th those are the two on the investor side. And you know, because of the huge demand for real estate, the property developers, which we sort of skimmed over earlier, have also been playing fast and loose. And Beijing has instituted what's known as three red lines in order to curb excess debt from property developers. Uh, these are a little technical, so I'm just going to gloss over them. It's a liabilities to asset ratio of no more than 70%, a net debt to equity ratio of 100%, and a cash to short-term debt ratio of 100% as well. Um, that's a little technical. Basically, it means you can't take on too much debt, which was really prescient as what happened with Evergrande, which we will get to in a minute. I promise. I know we. I know we've been saying that. But Mike mentioned the very high equity equity requirements for individuals purchasing second and third, i.e., investment properties within China of seventy percent. This is a big deal. You know, the, if you've been paying attention to the news and you've heard every rand, you might have heard Lehman come up a lot, which was the first uh, bank to fail in the United States as a result of the two thousand eight financial crisis, and it's being oh, you know, is this China's Lehman moment and everything like that. And a huge difference between the United States in 2008 and China in 2021 is this huge equity requirements in investment properties. This is a little financial and a little technical, but basically what that means is that in the United States, say you bought a house for a million dollars and you took out a loan for $900,000 of that. That means you put 100,000 down as equity. If the price of the home dropped a lot like it did in 2008 to say $500,000, that means you are now $400,000 in the hole because you have a loan 
loan for 90,000, you have a house that's worth 50 and you only have 100,000 of equity. So like you're, you're hugely in debt. You're, you're like, this is, it's worse than being wiped out. You have negative dollars. You have not zero dollars, negative dollars. In China, if there is an enormous collapse, you know, in, the, in that 50% range, it's going to suck. People are going to lose their savings, but they're not going to go into debt, which is a major, major difference. Um, and that alone is going to really stymie the potential damage of a real estate collapse within China. Um, the second thing is that unlike in 2008, Beijing did take action prior to even Evergrande, which is precipitating the crisis right now. So there have been attempts prior to the bubble bursting to kind of cool things down a little bit. So you know, we're talking a lot about doom and gloom here, but I want to be fair and say that, you know, I can't see the future, nobody can, but I would predict that this does not go down like 2008 did in the West. Yeah, fair, but it's 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 definitely going to slow their economy down somewhat, and it's worth keeping in mm-hmm. mind with all this talk going around about how China's going to overtake the United States soon. No, they've got some road bumps that they're going to hit before that point ever happens. So we think uh, that point of comparison yeah, is a-, a little bit too far off in the future. Yeah, and one, one last point, like that's a great point, and just to get, put some numbers behind that, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, estimates that a 20% drop in real estate in, activity in China would lead to a 5 to 10% drop in total GDP for all of China. So yeah, the effects would be substantial. And one last point, one last point before we move on, to not overstate the effects of this housing bubble, there is huge demand for real estate within China within those top tier cities. Like we talked about Shenzhen, Beijing, Shanghai, all these cities are unaffordable. So if there is extra housing being built there, that's probably a good thing. It's really the investment properties, ghost cities like in Inner Mongolia where nobody's currently living that people are buying sight unseen, where there's no population right now, no future prospects for economic growth right there. Those investments are probably the ones who are going to be wiped out more. So I guess what I'm saying is, Property investment in China is a little bit heterogeneous. There's going to be some that might not be that bad, and then there's going to be some that's going to be really, really wiped out because of the underlying. Well, I mean, I think I think the problem's present in cities as well. It's not just the, it's not. I don't think the stuff like in Inner Mongolia, that, that famous one that you're talking about, is even necessarily like the majority of what we're talking about. This is happening everywhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm ta- no, no, I agree. But I'm talking about the degree in which it will be bad. Sure. So, Evergrande, uh, let me give you a very brief rundown, dear listener, of what's going on if you've been paying attention to the news. So, basically, Evergrande is not the largest property developer in China, but I believe the second largest, and they have entered a death spiral. What do I mean by that? Because of the continually appreciating, i.e. increasing in value, real estate market in China, Evergrande was left to fund a lot of its activities based on debt and the prospect of future growth. So what does that mean? That means that today they have to continue to build houses to satisfy houses that they've already sold. One thing that we didn't mention is that houses are being sold sight unseen in China because there's such demand for it. Like there's literally auctions for the ability to get the right to buy a house. So Evergrande was, you know, selling property at a breakneck rate more than they were selling more property than existed. They were, you know, expected to sell it today and build it tomorrow for people uh, the next day. But so what happened is that they were taking on so much debt to build the properties today, they were relying on future incoming sales to be able to finance their construction today. So they weren't paying for today's construction with today's proceeds. They were paying with for today's construction with tomorrow's proceeds. So what that means is that when the housing market started to cool down even a teeny bit because of the regulations that Beijing put in place, like we just discussed, their future cash flow started to decline, which means that they couldn't maintain their operations which were going on today. So what happened is because they needed that, they, like not selling homes was not an option for Evergrande because they needed that they needed tomorrow's money to pay for activities today. They had to lower the price of tomorrow's homes. So it started off, you know, just a small dip, like 1% off historical averages. And, you know, that brought in a little bit more sales. But then they had to keep on doing that because we talked about how, oh, if something's going to be worth more tomorrow, you buy it today and sell it tomorrow. Well, the same thing happens in reverse. If you expect something to be worth less tomorrow, you wait till tomorrow rather than buying it today. So as Evergrande kept lowering its prices, it had to keep lowering its prices to continue to bring in investors. And this just led to a debt spiral, which I was talking about earlier, which eventually they were selling homes on like 75 cents per the dollar, which if you're expecting, oh, this is going to be worth so much more tomorrow than today, you're like, that raises red flags for even like a regular Chinese investor. Like, what is going on? Why is this property, you know, because say you bought a home yesterday for a million dollars and then the very next day, this exact same home, because they're building them in huge apartment blocks, is sold for $750,000. like what is going on? Um, and it's really at this point that people started to raise red flags, look at their books, and um, yeah, it got worse from there. And because of this continued economic slowdown, uh, Evergrande actually missed 
interest payments on its foreign denominated debt, i.e. in US dollars, and the CCP had to step in to inject 300 billion US dollars into the company to keep it afloat in a move that was seen uh, by observers to really help prop up the domestic consumers of Evergrande property and their debt. And just like that, the world's biggest property developer had to be bailed out owing to this bubble that we've been outlying for you for the last, I don't know, three hours, it sounds like, with, with the housing <laughs> crisis. Um, okay, so that's that's probably sufficient to, to illustrate our point in regards to housing. So there are some other things that we want to talk about with the Chinese economy and some things that it's well known for, like its tech sector. Um, and whether or not the tech sector is going to grow to outpace the United States, which could be a topic all in and of its own. Uh, we've previously covered things like artificial intelligence. We, we want to do more. But for now, let's just suffice to say that if you were paying attention to what happened with Alibaba earlier in the year, you're going to know what we're talking about here. Um, there is a stifling environment for innovation in China. Um, leaving alone the fact that despite the fact that in the school systems they score extremely highly on things like all things engineering related, like their math scores are very good, uh, their creativity and their ability to innovate um, is by far the lowest, which is why you don't see very many companies sourcing creative divisions in China, but you do see them sourcing from areas like Sweden or the United States. Um, do you know anything about that, Michael, by the way? <laughs> I do, because it's currently, <laughs> because it's currently my job. <laughs> Not the, I don't want to talk about work work right now, but... No, no, um, no. Anyways, yeah, so uh, tech sectors in China, totally unlike the United States, <laughs> are being managed for political ends. <laughs> yeah, so that's really worth thinking about. Um, you know, there's a the whole question that Mike brought up about Chinese creativity and being able to innovate, but I'm going to take a slightly narrower approach to this topic and just talk about the chilling effects that recent CCP action has had on the tech sector, which even though real estate and construction is the biggest uh, sector of the Chinese economy, tech is still enormous. Think about, um, you know, how big it is in the United States. These are huge, huge companies that really drive the economy. So for the first time, really since economic liberalization in the 1980s in China, there have been considerations other than economic growth placed on a sector. What am I talking about? When the CCP took action against Alibaba, against Ant Financial, against Didi, all these companies, like for, in, in Didi, they meddled with the IPO, and Alibaba, they really like dropped the hammer on Jack Ma, who made uh, statements really going against the party. These considerations are being made at a political level, not an economic one. It is not good economics to crush your biggest company just because you know you don't like what their CEO says. However, it is really good political considerations if you don't want anyone getting buck with the ruling party. Um, and as a result, just like think about the huge economic inefficiencies this is going to cost. Sure, like maybe say like Ant falls apart, uh, Alibaba falls apart, and a new competitor rises up to take its place. That's still going to cause enormous dislocation because that company wouldn't have come up in the second place had it not been for direct government meddling. And it's the fact that the government is willing to incur these economic costs for the purpose of maintaining their political power that is really beginning to cause harm to the Chinese economy. Just a thought off the top of my head, and I, I wonder how true this might be, but I suspect it is difficult for a Chinese company to scale globally the way that an American company can because so many Chinese apps are made specifically for the Chinese market with all kinds of like all kinds of stuff embedded to censor material and control the flow of information. Uh, obviously, that's not true with things like TikTok or Alibaba, but it but you know the world does react to China the way it behaves. Uh, see Huawei phones. You know, you can't even get Huawei in the United States. They blocked them from continuing their 5G tower construction in the UK. Uh, things like that go down all the time. Um, there are a lot of companies in China which simply exist to mimic the services provided by other countries' companies like the United States and Europe. Not that Europe's a country, but you know what I mean. On, on that topic, you know, one of the main points of economic growth for is just stability and confidence. And it's really hard to have those inspired in any Chinese company when you can see the way the government can manhandle a company. If a government does not, if the CCP does not like a company, it can take it down one, two, three, four, five pegs. Um, and you, know, you may have seen like the Facebook, you know, Google, Amazon hearings or whatever on Capitol Hill. That was a clown show compared well, yeah. to what's going on with the uh, CCP. Well, <laughs> conver conversely, um, yes, the CCP can take you down however many pegs it wants at will. But what that really ends up doing is creating a competitive environment where it's not – I mean it is about providing a great service and having a great app and whatever, you know, being a good company. But you also need to be really good at kissing up to the Chinese Communist Party 
uh, or else you're going to end up like Alibaba or worse, you're going to end up like Didi, who for context is like the Chinese equivalent of Uber. In fact, they actually outcompeted Uber. I say outcompeted. They, they were pretty scandalous uh, in the way. I mean, they, they literally <laughs> had like managers at Didi calling hundreds of fake rides just to bankrupt Uber drivers. That's the, ex- yeah, that's the extent to which they were willing to play dirty. Um, and I think that's part, not to mention real quick, not to mention the support of the CCP in like, yeah, not, not to mention dirty. the implicit blessing. Yeah. Of the CCP. Um, but ultimately that playing dirty now, once Uber was gone and it was other Chinese startups that they were playing around with, you know, that got them into trouble. And so now one of the most highly valued IPOs in China is kicked off every app store banned from operating in most major cities. And for all intents and purposes, it's just had its head cut off. Um, so that is something that can just happen at whim. Yeah, it had its IPO yanked as well on what was going to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. But I think we've spent um, you know enough time on tech for now. I, I think this is probably warrants a full episode in its own right. But do you have any closing thoughts before we move on to a couple of other topics? The only thing I would reiterate is China does not have the level of innovation that the rest of the world enjoys. It just doesn't. It does. It is very good at implementing ideas. It is very good at engineering things on mass it is not necessarily super great at coming up with the next big concept i don't know do you have anything no i think that's good and for the first time since its economic liberalization the ccp has shown that it's willing to take damaging steps to the economy in order to secure its political prerogatives really in a way that it hasn't uh so that's just worth keeping in mind discussing china's economy moving forward everything the party concerns itself with is about the party at the end of the day. It's about keeping themselves in mm-hmm. power. And, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning that there is a balancing act between the, the implicit bargain that the CCP has struck with its people is that we deliver you economic growth, you deliver us your freedom. Uh, and so, so that's why I'm harping on this point that the CCP has decided to stymie economic growth for political considerations, because at the end of the day, economic growth is a political consideration within China. We've given you a rundown of all the big problems facing the Chinese economy, but we haven't really told you what people on the ground think. Earlier this year, a phrase went viral on the Chinese internet. It was it said, Tang Ping, and I don't know my Chinese tones, so don't judge my Mandarin too hard, but Tang Ping means to lie flat. So this guy got on Chinese Weibo and wrote a big blog post extolling the virtues of his, it's like a very stoic lifestyle where he literally just lies flat doesn't participate in the rat race um, and does not concern himself with the ambitions of owning a house or eating nice food or having kids or getting married, period. He just is content being there. And this thing took off like wildfire, got mentioned tens of thousands of times and circulated to the point that Chinese censors stepped in and banned the phrase Tongping from the internet and you know scrubbed all mention of this conversation from the Chinese social sphere. Why does this matter? Well, first, as you may recall from earlier with the demographic crisis being what it is, China needs its people to be productive. It cannot have a movement like this uh, taking off. So the norm in China up until this point, and it continues to be the modal way of working, is something called 996, which means you work from 9 a.m. till 9 p.m., six days a week. People in China work a lot of hours. That has been the case for a very long time. It's probably no secret if you've you know, with all the stereotypes about how Chinese parents are super brutal on their kids in school, right? It's it's something that rings true for a reason. Um, people have gotten fed up with it, and for the first time ever, they don't see their economic station proceeding in line with the perceived progress of the country. In other words, they feel like the country's getting rich while they're not. When you can reasonably expect your life to be better than your parents and your children's life to be better than yours, you have a tremendous appetite to work hard. They themselves are seeing dimming economic prospects for themselves. They don't think that that trend of better life than your parents and better life for your children will continue for them. And thus, there is a resistance to joining the rat race because the question is, what's the point? Well, I mean, the point is to prop up the party, really. It's not really for their happiness. I, I want to I like mention a brief bugaboo of mine, a pet peeve when people talk about China. They're always like, again, the whole China thinks in terms of centuries while we concern ourselves with the next 30 minutes. Or, you know, China's existed forever because it's this stable, long-lived. Stable is always the word that you hear. It's the word that the Chinese use, as a matter of fact, when, when justifying the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. It contributes to stability. 
if the Chinese Communist Party perceived its country as being stable, it would not be taking steps like scrubbing lying flat from the internet. It would not be doing things like cracking down on student protests, which I which I didn't actually get into in this episode. But ba- basically, they've never cracked they, down uh, on student protests before, Michael. <laughs> okay, I got a little ahead of myself with that statement. Fair enough, but uh, the 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 short story is that. Uh, They've recognized in China that there's a need for more blue-collar careers as opposed to white-collar careers, which are continually paying less and less and less because so many people are graduating from these schools because that was the cultural norm. Uh, They started to merge a couple colleges, uh, trade schools with white-collar universities, and the students were going to have their degrees changed. And because your entire life revolves around getting into a good school in China for the prospects of your future, everything, um, a lot of student protests came up, like riots came up, and then they were quashed brutally, of course, because that's what happens in China. Hmm. Um, the other <laughs> the other thing, <laughs> hilariously, that they've taken to recently is banned the use of sissy men, like literally, quote-unquote, <laughs> sissy men from the internet. God, what, 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 what's like the official Chinese term? It's so great. It's like... Little Rockets I think or that is actually the most accurate trans- okay, yeah. trans, uh, okay. translation. I, I heard something more metaphorical, like Little Rockets or something like that. But Little Rockets? <laughs> oh, no. I heard, like, girly men. Yeah, I heard girl, yeah, yeah. Man. I saw, I saw a story of this popular Chinese TikToker. Oh, my God. This who, one's so good. You know, he dresses in a little white fuzzy bear costume, and he uses tons of, like, beauty filters, and he looks really effeminate, and he's like, I'm eating food, and I'm playing video games, and, and whatever. Um, and he got hit with the ban hammer, <laughs> like, underneath the sissy, the sissy man ban. Yeah, and then came back like, and then he came back without the filters. Was like deeply apologizing and was wearing a military uniform with like his close cropped hair, and you should have just seen like the self content smile he had. Like, look at me, I've changed. Immediately hit with the band hammer again. <laughs> <laughs> when I read the story, I actually cried yeah. from laughing. Yeah. But it's like it's no, because it's... either you either laugh or you cry in a situation like this. Yeah. It is. But this this goes back to your point of. A self-confident nation does not see the need to ban girly men, which by definition means that the United States is the most confident nation in the world, but... (laughs) 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 I'm not sure what that says about Ukraine. (laughs) Uh, All right. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, but... there are other things I want to say. Like, if if you follow, like, Chinese state media accounts anywhere, like, they're... Their foreign affairs department puts out these wolf warrior statements where they call Justin Trudeau a little boy or, uh, I don't know. Like, they basically just meme on everybody. And, by the way, wolf warrior is what the Chinese call these diplomats. And uh, wolf warrior is actually a reference to, like, a Rambo-esque type movie that they produce in China. Like, a real lone wolf thing. Anyways, like, those are the kind of moves, like, you bark loud when your bite is not actually that strong as you would like people to think that it is. That's the point that we're making. I don't want to get too off in the weeds with it, but... Yeah, um, no, I think, um, I think the weeds have already encroached upon us, and I, unless there's anything else you want to add to wrap this up, I think it's, uh, you know, I'm looking at the recording, and we should probably head to the outro pretty soon. Okay, well, on that happy note, (laughs) let's let's put (laughs) a cap on this conversation. As we've hopefully conveyed in this episode, there are multiple severe social and economic headwinds facing China. None of this is to discount the past 40 years of remarkable growth, but instead to point out that the next 40 years are far from written in stone. The CCP has an ongoing implicit bargain with the Chinese people that economic prosperity and stability justify the one-party state and its authoritarian measures of control. Any fraying of that bargain could have catastrophic political implications for the future of the party. A tremendous amount of China's economic miracle has been leveraged against its future, and few people are coming to understand this point, as well as the Chinese people themselves. You can email us your questions at thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. We will eventually do another mailbag. Sorry for the delay. Um, But if you have any questions related to China that you want answered and it is sufficiently stupid and ill-thought-out and just plain wrong-headed as everything else that you've heard this so far, it'll fit right in and we will read your question on air. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into the Synopsis Podcast. I'm Michael. I'm Sam. And until next time, remember, nothing is to be feared, only understood. The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.